you realize this is okay. I can do this. Nothing bad is going to happen. I can tolerate the anxiety. The anxiety will come down. When our children feel anxious, it's normal for us as parents to want to turn off their pain and make those feelings go away. But actually, teaching our child coping skills to deal with their anxiety is a much more effective strategy. Joining me to help parents learn anxiety management techniques, as well as the knowledge of when it's time to call in some professional support, is licensed clinical psychologist and the author of the new book, Goodbye Anxiety, a Guided Journal for Overcoming Worry, Dr. Terry Backow. In order to know how to best support our child, it's helpful to understand the difference between normative feelings of anxiety, a perfectly healthy emotion that we all experience, and when it crosses into a disordered level. I hope this episode helps you feel empowered with solutions and tools, along with reassurances that there is plenty of support to help you work through this with your child. In this episode, we'll dive deep into the topic of childhood anxiety. And one of the treatment modalities that we mention, that as you'll hear, both Dr. Terry and I are big proponents of, is space. SPACE, which stands for Supportive Parenting for Anxious Childhood Emotions, is a parent-based treatment program for children and teens with anxiety or OCD developed by Dr. Ellie Leibowitz at the Yale Child Study Center. By utilizing the parent-child relationship and our understanding of attachment theory to focus on our children's most basic need to seek safety from their caregivers, through SPACE, parents are given tools and skills that they need to understand exactly how to respond to their child's anxiety in a way that strengthens their child's ability to cope with their discomfort and ultimately overcome their symptoms of anxiety. After this episode, if you're interested in learning more about the work my clinical practice, Upshur Bren Psychology Group, is doing to treat childhood anxiety and OCD with space, go to upsherbren.com forward slash space. Not only do we have trained and licensed therapists working one-on-one with parents, but we've also begun running four-week virtual group programs to help parents develop a personalized roadmap with strategies for supporting your unique child focused entirely on your own behaviors, which you actually have control over. To learn more, go to upsherbren.com forward slash space. That's U-P-S-H-U-R-B-R-E-N.com forward slash space space. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited today to welcome Terry back out to the podcast. She is a clinical psychologist. She wrote an amazing book, workbook called Goodbye Anxiety. Um, for teens and tweens. And she's here today to talk to us all about anxiety in our kiddos and in ourselves. And uh, I'm so glad that you are here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So one of the reasons that we talked about doing this episode was because you've really created a specialization in treating anxiety 
you know, in adults and in teens and tweens and also with younger children. And I was, you know, I get a lot of questions about anxiety too. And I think there's a lot of, you know, misunderstanding about anxiety. And, you know, one, I'm just curious how you got into this work, but then maybe we could talk a little bit about clearing up some misconceptions about anxiety. Yeah. So I think that um, people don't understand, number one, that it's an incredibly common experience. You know, I think that there's maybe a misunderstanding that anxiety is only experienced by a few of us. One, really, every single person in the world has anxiety. It's a common emotion. It's universal. It's actually also adaptive. It is the number one disorder diagnosed by psychologists and psychiatrists. Interesting. Yes, it's really, like, it's so funny. I was working with a nine-year-old yesterday, and he has OCD, which is kind of a sort of, it's on that anxiety spectrum. And he was like, I feel like I'm the only one that has this. And I was a little heartbroken for him, but also really encouraged to be able to help him understand, like, this is so common. It is. It is, and in my practice, every single one of my clients has it. I mean, part of that is selection bias, but it also reflects the general population. Yeah. And I think, and this is where I think people have a lot of misunderstanding about it is, um, you know, when we treat anxiety, they have this belief that the goal of treatment is to make the anxiety go away. When in fact, treating anxiety actually means helping people tolerate the anxiety that exists. Exactly. You know, there's a lot of attempts to suppress it, to eliminate it, and that can lead to a rebound effect. It's actually the worst thing you could do is to try to shut down your feelings. In fact, the opposite, which is allowing yourself to feel your feelings, will allow them to pass faster. Yes. So can you help us understand a little bit, like, what is anxiety exactly? What's going on? So anxiety is an uncomfortable feeling, typically. It's not always comfortable. The way that I like to define it is that it is an overestimation of the likelihood of danger and an underestimation of our ability to cope. Meaning that anxiety typically, different than stress, it tends to be out of proportion. It tends to be an overreaction. So stress tends to be, you know, temporary, specific, proportional, whereas anxiety is more chronic, it's more ongoing, it's more problematic at times. Yeah, that is such a great and condensed way to put it. An overestimation of the likelihood of danger and an underestimation of our ability to cope with that. And the reason why we're overreacting isn't because we're irrational, it's because our threat detector is hypersensitive. Yes, yes. And this is where the biology comes in. And the sound of anxiety runs in family. It's highly genetic. You know, like Lady Gaga said, you're just born that way. It's really something that gets passed along and it's neurobiological, meaning that it originates in our brains and our bodies. And people who have anxiety disorders tend to have more overactive nervous system, more sensitive nervous system, meaning they're more likely and more prone to experiencing 
pity and that increase sensations of anxiety, such as a basic heart, butterfly, tension. Those things tend to happen more um, when we experience anxiety, especially if we are genetically prone to it. So interesting because it, it, you know, it really shows that, you know, I think a lot of people have, have they're self-critical for their anxiety. They blame themselves. There's shame around it. A lot of times they question their sense of reality. And it's really, it's something that like when people have high levels of anxiety, it might be completely outside of their control. Absolutely. I think the stigma is so misplaced. It's sort of like blaming yourself for having diabetes or a heart condition or a cold. Now, this is really something that is neurochemical, which is why sometimes psychiatric medication can be a good choice. But therapy is also a really good choice. Yes. What are some of the ways that therapy and like behavioral interventions can help with anxiety disorders? Therapy is the best thing you could do if you have anxiety, and particularly a specific kind of therapy that we call CBT, which stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. This is the gold standard when it comes to the treatment of anxiety disorders. It is just a great fit because the therapy approach really teaches concrete coping skills. It's present focused, it's action oriented, solution focused, and it's all really about what are some actionable strategies that you could use when you feel anxious. And that's what CBT does. It teaches the strategy, mindfulness, breathing, reframing, behavioral changes. All of those strategies really can stop anxiety in the track. Yeah. And it kind of works... One of the reasons why I like CBT for anxiety and full disclosure, I'm a very psychodynamic relational therapist and I still use CBT when I work with people who have anxiety because when we have that sort of overactive amygdala or that hyper vigilance that comes from the presence of that hyper, that, that fear-based nervous system activation, we have to override that neurobiological response kind of manually. And CBT does a really good job of giving people sort of conscious manual override or like cheat codes to their nervous system responses. I completely agree. And that's why CBT and other evidence-based treatment approaches really are a good match. And I think that most of all, anxious people, me included, want to feel in control. And CBT can be empowering in that way because what we're telling clients is try this, do this homework sheet, try this exercise, go out and speak to someone you don't know, see what happens. It's really concrete. Yes. And that, this go out and speak to someone you don't know makes me think of ERP, which is, or exposure and response prevention, which is another type of treatment for anxiety and, and anxiety disorders, which is kind of under the umbrella of CBT. Can you talk a little bit about ERP? Yes. So exposure therapy, including the response prevention piece, is really great for fears, for phobias, for OCD, for when we are avoiding the fear situation. And when we avoid, we only reinforce the fear. We solidify it. We teach ourselves, I can't do this. 
So exposure offered the opposite smiling, see what happens, see if it's as bad as you think it's going to be, get used to it, habituate. When, when it comes to OCD, there's a tendency to engage in rituals to prevent maybe something bad happening. And so if you sit on your hand and you prevent the response, you do not go and check the event 100 times, you refrain from turning that light switch on and off, then you realize this is okay. I can do this. Nothing bad is going to happen. I can tolerate the anxiety. The anxiety will come down. Exactly. That slow and steady and sometimes subtle progression of tolerating a stressful stimulus so we can begin to cope with that fear or refraining from the rituals, like you said, in the case of OCD and learning to tolerate the anxious feelings that come with it. And I think this is the part that's the most important part. We're not eliminating anxiety by doing CBT or ERP. We're increasing the tolerance for the feeling without having to engage in maladaptive behaviors that ultimately kind of keep it going. This makes me think about substance and commitment therapy, which is the third wave of CBT. It's another kind of evidence-based approach. And it's all about experiential avoidance and really stop trying to shut down your feelings really allow yourself to feel them. And what's ironic is, if you sit with the emotion and you try to cope with it effectively, that's so much better than just trying to get it to go away. Yes. And I think that's part of like the sort of psychoeducation I often give patients when I start working with them around anxiety. I think a lot of people come to therapy saying, make this anxiety go away, make my anxiety go away, make my child's anxiety go away. And the the sort of orientation to the therapy starts with, well, that's not going to be the goal. We're going to make the discomfort around the anxiety being present reduce. But it's a feeling that is a human feeling you're going to have, like, we all will have. Absolutely. I think as a parent myself and someone who's worked with parents, I can tell you that it's really hard to see your child uncomfortable. And I think the parents um, have a particularly difficulty, especially in today's parenting culture, tolerating child distress. You know, when we see our kids distressed, we want immediately to make it better. Yeah. Immediately yeah. to cure whatever's happening and that's not always the best message to send. It's understandable. We don't want our kids to be unhappy, but they need to learn to experience distress and to tolerate and manage it in order to be functioning adults. Right. And maybe this would be a good time to talk a little bit about like in children, what does anxiety look like? Because it doesn't always look the same in kids as it does in grown-ups. There's overlap, but there's like kids show anxiety in slightly different ways sometimes. Absolutely. The way that it can manifest also depends on how old you are. Like in younger kids, you're going to see a little bit more tantruming, behavioral changes, avoidance, um, crying, irritability. Whereas in teenagers, you're going to see more moodiness, withdrawal, lack of focus, distraction, you know, it really can present differently depending on the age. And a lot of times kids and teens don't want to talk about it. Whereas I think adults were more self-aware, like, I don't like this, I am going to talk about it. 
was kid, a teenager, don't always know what's happening to them, and they're also embarrassed. So, particularly teenagers, you're not necessarily going to hear about it from them. You're just going to have to pick up on the grumpiness, the avoidance, the tantrum. Yeah, yeah. And so I think sometimes parents can miss it and don't see the anxiety underneath the grumpiness, the irritability, the moodiness, the tantrums, especially in younger kids, you know, it can look like a a very dysregulated child. Um, Sometimes it even can get misdiagnosed as ADHD in like very young kids, I think. A hundred percent. And it's tricky since ADHD and anxiety can sometimes become morbid, you know, sometimes they can co-occur. But in the absence of ADHD, when it's purely an anxiety disorder, we also see lack of focus, we see distraction. And so that can be misconstrued as ADHD. But with anxiety, you're definitely going to see misbehavior. You're going to see protest, resistance. I don't want to go to the sleepover. I don't want to go to this party. And then you might be so frustrated with your kids, but really they're just so anxious. Right. And it's different. Like, you know, we were saying grownups, we have more self-awareness. We can say, my body's feeling uncomfortable. I've got a racing heart. I am having racing thoughts. I'm worrying about this thing. Kids, especially young kids, but even some teenagers don't have the language or the self-awareness to be able to really reflect to their parents or to other people in their lives. I'm feeling anxious. They just show it. And so how can parents decipher some of these behavioral cues? What are ways that parents can maybe look under the surface of the behaviors to see if, and check, what should they be looking for to see if there's really anxiety underneath those behaviors? So I think parents might need to be direct and really just flat out ask. But if you're going to ask, you need to do so in a really sensitive way, a really non-judgmental non-shaming way. And sometimes I encourage parents to tell a story about themselves and their own anxiety or time in their lives that they were really freaked out. And, you know, kids love hearing love hearing stories about their parents. So if you share or you disclose, you know, when I was in third grade that I had to do the first day of school, I remember that this was really hard for me. Does that sound like what's going on for you? And mm-hmm. I think if you ask, and you ask in a non-shaming, non-judgmental way, your kids will tell you what's going on for them. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes we have to give them the words, not in a priming kind of way, but in a, I wonder if this might be what's going on for you. The I wonder statement is a game changer in my family. <laughs> I don't know about you. Right. I think different language. And modeling that language can be really powerful. And I also think it's not always up to parents to figure this out. Like if you see that your child is struggling, they seem to be having a hard time, there's an increase in irritability and tantrum, and you think something might be going on, do not hesitate to enlist a professional, to find a therapist who can do an assessment and an evaluation and who can tell you what's really going on which leads to, again, the challenge of getting the child to go, which is a whole separate topic. But I think that parents shouldn't put pressure on themselves to diagnose and to address it. 
to be the leader, to delegate to an expert. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when you and I were talking about this episode, you made a really amazing point, which is, you know, there's so much information out there for parents today telling them, do this, just, you know, teach your children mindfulness or teach them these strategies. And it's kind of gets put on the parent to feel like it's my responsibility as a parent to be able to manage my child's anxiety. And you made a really important point that that's not fair to parents and it isn't their responsibility to manage their child's anxiety. That's a huge undertaking and you need to have help with that. Exactly. And that is exactly um, my point of view on the matter, which is that I think that teachers, especially, will say to parents, the child is doing blah, blah, blah. And then the parent, they punch it to them almost like a football. I'm mm-hmm. handing this problem over to you. And then the parent gets so anxious. The teacher reports that my child is acting out or anxious. What do I do? And then the parenting culture will end. We feel the pressure to fix it. And I think as parents, we need to give ourselves permission to I am not an expert on this topic. I don't have a degree in in psychology or in child psychology. I am going to enlist an expert to partner with me and to help me help my child. Yes. And that partnership is key. I think, you know, in my practice, whether sometimes we work exclusively with the parents when a child has anxiety, um, there's there's a new type of therapy called space. Have you heard of space? I have heard of space. I have. I've actually presented on it. I'm really familiar with it. Oh, let's talk about space. Um, so, you know, one of the ways that we help parents in our practice, sometimes we work with parents exclusively when a child has anxiety, but even when a child is the is the one going to therapy, we always bring the parents in to give, to work kind of holistically with the family because you can't treat a kid's anxiety in a vacuum without the parents. So what's interesting about space is, on the one hand, we're telling you as the parent are not responsible for fixing this. At the same time, there are things the parent can do to certainly, at minimum, not make it worse. And what space does is it teaches parents some skills and some tools to not exacerbate their anxiety and to even help a little bit. So... Space is really good, especially when the child refuses to attend therapy or is not able to, it's really resistant. Then parents can learn some tools. But again, the parent wouldn't be doing these strategies by themselves. The therapist would be working with the parent and teaching them these strategies. And that's the kind of beauty of it. Yes. I'm re- my practice, we've gotten so interested in space. Almost all of my clinicians have gone through the training for it, um, in part because we work with a lot of parents of very young kids. And I've found that that's super helpful because space, the child is not involved in the therapy. There, it, it, it's, the interventions are all on the level of parental behavior, reducing are accommodations of the anxious rituals that occur in anxiety. It, I often describe it as like we as parents, when our children are anxious, we end up inadvertently becoming the snooze button for their anxiety. We just mm-hmm. 
we feel so compelled or, or pulled in by our child to hit that snooze button, turn off the uncomfortable feeling for them. And they become really dependent on us to hit the snooze button. And what I like about space is it helps the parent develop strategies to not hit that snooze button, support the child to hit, to dismantle that alarm on their own. But it's great for really young kids who can't really do therapy as well. Correct. And I think one of the most powerful interventions within space for parents is to not allow the child to avoid the feared situation. You know, this is where accommodation comes in. We're tempted to, oh, you don't have to go to school today. You can stay home from camp today. Oh, I'll, I'll call the mom and you don't have to go with the sleepover. When we do that, we make it worse, completely unintentionally. And instead of over-accommodation, what the science shows it's better is to say to the child with empathy, I know this is hard for you. Don't want to go to camp today. And you are going. Goodbye, and I will see you later. Mm-hmm. Goodbye. And that's really hard for parents, but once you do it, you really see the impact. And you don't collude with the avoidance. Right. And I think that piece of the validation is critical. You have to let the child feel seen in their distress. You have to name it. You have to acknowledge it. You have to give it validity. It is so hard to do this. It's hard to say goodbye. It's hard to spend the day at camp. It's hard to be X, Y, Z, whatever the fearful, the fear is, right? Or the avoidant thing is. And I know you can handle this feeling and I know that you can give this a go. And and so that emotional support without necessarily adjusting the schedule or the plan or making a big change. And sometimes kids can't go to camp. You know, it's too much. Maybe we have to scaffold. Maybe we have to work our way up. You know, sometimes you need to know your kid and you got to know how far. I always talk about it like, can we bend but not break? Can we stretch them just far enough so that they're not so distressed that we've missed the window of change. Absolutely. If you think about psychological science, about exposure therapy, we create hierarchy. Everything is done in incremental baby steps. You would not just put your child at the deep end of the pool. You would start out at the shallow end of the pool and you would incrementally work your way towards. So yes, you need to start out small and also be firm that this is going to be okay. And to your earlier point about validation, I think the trick is to blend the validation with the firmness. So you start with the validation, you start with a reflective statement where you acknowledge the child's feelings and know this is hard for you. And you follow that up with the limit and you are going to go to camp today. And you could bookend that with it's going to be fine. You could do this. Something encouraging to offer a lot of praise. That's really helpful. And um, in fact, I think the parents sometimes forget to do that praise. To praise the brave behavior, a lot of times we over-attend to the anxious, avoidant behavior. But when a child does something really brave, we don't always remember to call them out and to give them a compliment. And that's really important. 
Yes, I agree. I think, and it's interesting, like I think praise praise is tricky for parents these days. Like praise is confusing because you hear a lot of people being out in the parenting world saying, don't praise your kids. It will make them, you know, it will inhibit their intrinsic motivation or, you know, which to some degree we know is true, but I don't think the the antidote is to not praise our kids. It's just to be mindful of the way that we praise our kids. Precisely. I think there can never be a shortage of praise. So my personal opinion is you cannot praise your child too much. But like you said, the way you praise or how you praise can make a difference. You know, we're told really to praise the effort, not the outcome to really acknowledge how hard you're working, how hard you're trying. I love how you did that rather than great painting. Yes, 100%. But if you say great painting, it's fine too. It's totally fine. And like, we all do it. Like, I definitely say good job to my kids. But I do try to be mindful of that, of balancing that out with the effort, the the resilience, the grit, you know, how hard you worked on something. Especially when it comes to anxiety, I think that part's actually really critical because if we just praise a child for going to camp when they're anxious, we make camp potentially a little bigger than it is. It can put camp on a pedestal, it can create pressure around maybe today they could and tomorrow they might not be able to. And now then if they got praised for going to camp, they might feel like if they can't the next time they've failed versus if your child's really anxious about going to camp and they make it one day without any issues going to camp and they say goodbye at drop-off and you say, it was so hard to say goodbye this morning and you were able to do it today. You pushed through that uncomfortable feeling and you got yourself in with your friends and you made it. That focus puts the focus on the work that they did to get there and not camp itself, which I think is, you know, when you have a child who has anxiety, like you were saying, we were saying at the beginning, they're hyper vigilant and hyper attuned to things that feel scary. And so when we give weight, a lot of weight to something like an outcome or a, a job well done or like what we, a behavior we, we want them to engage in, sometimes it can make that pressure, that thing feel very pressurized, which can actually increase anxiety. I love how you said that. And I really love how you phrased it. That was spot on. And that's exactly right, which is to trace the attempt at the fact that you had hard feelings and you persevered. That's the part we're praising. Mm -hmm. Because that's the part that we really want to help build up in our kids. When they having, like all kids, but when you have a child who has anxiety, part of it, like you were saying, like the the two components you talked about, um, one of them was underestimating their ability to cope with something. So we've got to increase that that, that confidence that they can cope. And we do that by helping them notice when they're doing it and logging that. It's like, I'm capable. Look, I did this thing. I'm rewriting the blueprint or the narrative that I have in my mind of my abilities. Yes, exactly. The coping and the ability to get through is the part that we really want to kind of cut about for, which is you had skills. You could do this. 
you did this yesterday. What would that like for you? Do you think you could try again tomorrow? Yeah, I think that's so empowering. And it's empowering for parents because that's doable, right? Parents often feel overwhelmed when their kids have anxiety. They feel very helpless. They're like, I don't know how to respond to this. But giving them sort of these really concrete frameworks, right? We we validate the feeling, but we encourage them to see themselves as capable. We communicate that confidence. And then when they are able to do something, even if it's incremental, we really notice the effort that they put into the thing and work with them to rewrite their narrative of their abilities. Like that's doable for parents. It doesn't mean the anxiety disorder is going to clear up just because you do that. It takes time and work. But that's much different than saying, mom and dad, make this kid not anxious anymore. It's on you. It's definitely doable. And it's part of the work of parenting because parenting is really hard. All the time, we're trying to get them to do things they don't want to do. Day after day, morning after morning. So it's sort of the power of persuasion. Um, And again, the validation part is key. The refraining from allowing them to avoid is key. And I think parents can also keep in mind to model for your, for your kids, you know, if you as a parent are anxious, I have to say it's really best to not always show it. You know, we definitely want to communicate to kids that it's okay to have feelings, that as parents, we have feelings too. But we don't want to model um, freaking out for them because they might copy that. So I always encourage parents to really adopt a poker base. If you are, you are afraid of going on the roller coaster, maybe try to um, demonstrate that this is really hard for me and I'm going to go on the roller coaster. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think, yeah, like poker face about the, 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 be, the belief that I can't do this, you know, like... But maybe also saying, I am feeling anxious. I'm just going to push myself to do the thing. So it's like we want to model not avoidance. We want to model pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone. But I also think it's okay for us to acknowledge when we feel anxious. Like you were saying, kids feel kind of seen when their parents say, I've had this feeling too. I know what this feels like. Exactly. So this is sort of where the blend comes in, where you say the feeling, you say what you're feeling going to come way to kind of demonstrate to the child it is okay to have feelings. It's okay to have negative emotions. And this is how we try to cope with these negative emotions. We don't run away. We try to get through. This is me, mom, dad, this is me doing it. Yeah. Yeah, narrating that whole process, I think, is going to be so powerful for kids. So I'm curious what you think about this, because this is a sort of slightly different topic, but I think related. I have a lot of kids and parents in my practice who experience anxiety about things that are objectively scary. It's not, oh, I'm scared of a roller coaster because I'm scared, you know, the whole thing will fall apart or, but like the pandemic climate change, gun violence, things that are happening and are objectively scary. How do we help people who have anxiety when the things they're afraid of are not in their heads? They're also in reality. Great question. Because the world we live in 
it's insane. And so that is an incredibly relevant question. I'm so glad you asked that. So I would start by reiterating my earlier point about validation. I think we first need to validate for a client that it's understandable you're feeling this way. It's hard because it's hard. The reason that you're having this feeling is this situation is legitimately frightening. After that, after you offer that support to maybe talk about some distress tolerance skills, you know, what are some strategies for managing distress? The distress tolerance piece is really important. But what do we do when there's a circumstance that we hate but that we can't change? You know, I'm thinking about a shooting that happened earlier this summer that was just horrifying. And I think that this is where a substance-based method can be helpful. And I always have to be really clear. A substance doesn't mean approval. It does not mean that you like gun violence. I mean, that is an understatement. It's more that you accept this is a really difficult circumstance. It's really upsetting. And there is nothing necessarily that I can do about it at this moment. And that's okay. But at the same time, I always encourage clients to focus on really distinguishing between what you can and cannot control. If there's a circumstance where you just can't control it, a substance is perfect. If there's something that can be done, then you should do it. If there is an action that you can take. But I think that Focusing on what you can control and taking some small steps is another really great strategy for when anxiety is legitimate. Absolutely. That is such a helpful and simple like four-step process to keep in mind. Not that it's always easy to, but it's important to validate. Yes, it is scary. Practice distress tolerance skills. So I'm I have my strategies for managing distress that I know what I can do in these moments that it's hard and scary. Three is an acceptance-based model. So I have to sort of accept on my own that there are some things that I cannot control. And then four is take actions on the things that we can do, like these small steps, one thing at a time. And this strategy is true for grown-ups, and it can be tailored for kids too because I think kids in general – they live in a world where they're pretty helpless. They don't have a ton of agency. And so when things that are objectively scary happen in their world, it really compounds that sense of helplessness potentially because even when scary things aren't happening, kids can tend to feel sort of helpless. A lot of things just happen to them and they have to just kind of find their way through it. Um, so this idea of finding helping kids understand what they can't control and helping kids understand what they can control and really as the parent or the therapist creating awareness of tangible control in a child's life. And sometimes it's not about the thing that's scary, right? I think it's important to note like sometimes control, tangible control in a scary situation can look like I get to... I can control what game I play with my brother today. I can control which shoes I wear to school today. I can control what pair of pajamas I wear and 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 but like as parents we want to give that these opportunities for a lot of authentic control to our children who feel anxious because it helps them sort of 
balance out that sense of helplessness that comes with anxiety sometimes? It doesn't always have to be related to the thing that, that they're afraid of. Anxiety really is a birth control. It's a really common theme in anxiety disorder, you know. A lot of times I will ask the people that I work with, you know, what's really going on, what is this really about? Is this about, are you truly afraid of this situation? Or are you more concerned that you're going to be out of control? And is this maybe an attempt to get control? We see that a lot with generalized anxiety disorder with things like over-planning, um, over-compensating, which is really just an attempt to have control. Yeah. So I think helping kids both have control when they feel out of control, but also tolerating the lack of control that comes with life is also, it's like a tightrope we have to walk. It's its not always obvious what what is going to work. And so I think that's where it's always helpful to, to have help from a professional to kind of come up with a game plan. Yes. I always say, let's delegate to the professionals. You know, really take the pressure off of yourself as a parent and to find someone, especially who does CBT with kids. I think that is a really great fit for younger ages. I mean, it's a great fit for all ages. But with younger kids, we use a lot of Try and Yeah, I agree. And you, so this book that you wrote, Goodbye Anxiety, which is like a guided journal it's full of prompts to help you really kind of think about anxiety in a way that helps you feel like you've got control, like you have a sort of a, a roadmap. How did you end up thinking to write this book? How did this book come about? That's a great question. So I have to be completely honest that I lucked out. I got really lucky because a colleague of mine introduced me to the publisher. And it was actually in the spring of 2020. So I was massively stressed with the lockdown part of the pandemic. And um, I think this is a good example of showing up and saying yes, because I took the car just to kind of find out more. And I really connected with the publisher. They were really looking for someone who was an expert at CBT, who could offer, really create this resource for teenagers and tweens, and really offer the rest of us on how to manage anxiety. So it was kind of serendipitous. That's amazing. And it's really, I mean, it's, it's really great. I think this is something that like, I certainly think teens and tweens in my practice would like, but I also think some of these things that are in here can be translated for younger kids. So the audience of the book is, I would say the best age range for this book would be 14 to 24. Mm-hmm. And that, that it's designed to be youth-friendly. It's designed to be relatable, to really take psychological science and make it fun. I have a lot of pop culture references in the book. I make references to music, a movie. I had to do a lot of Googling, by the way, because <laughs> I'm old and I had to kind of really pretend to be hip. But um, the book is really designed to appeal to young people, young adults, tween teens. It's also meant to be giftable in the sense that parents, grandparents, teachers, educators, can really pick it up and give it as a gift to someone that they think is struggling with anxiety. And it's kind of disarming, you know, it has 
city colors and graphics and pictures. So I think that it's really youth-friendly. It can be given quite easily as a gift. I also think parents could pick up a copy if you'd like to learn more about CBT and some of the strategies and principles that are involved in this treatment approach. Yeah, no, I think it's a really great resource. What's one of your favorite strategies from the book that that maybe if you're a parent of a younger kid, you could pull and use with a child? So by, by far, my favorite is the idea of taking a breathing break. Okay, yeah. Talk, talk about a breathing break. I'll tell you about the breathing break. The breathing break is the idea of just stopping for a moment to take a breath. The good thing about breathing is you can't lose your breath and you can't leave it at home. You always mm-hmm. have your breath with you. It can be done anytime, anywhere, any place, and no one even needs to know that you're doing it. And what a breathing break, how it differs from just regular breathing, is that it's a little bit slower. We talk about something called square breathing, which is just, I think a number, any number, I tend to use the number four. And you inhale, we you know, to the count of four. You pause, and then you exhale, for a count of four. And this is slower breathing. It really engages the diaphragm and it's really relaxing. It also instantly soothes the nervous system because you're getting more oxygen to the entire part of your body. And when you get more oxygen to all of those body parts, it really kind of activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which is really good for calming down. And I think parents can quite easily teach this. You could really demonstrate it. And pretty straightforward. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think it's also really helpful to teach these these skills in like fun, playful ways and calm, connected moments, not in the midst of like a moment of intense panic and anxiety, but to kind of build these into life. And then after that way, they're more accessible in that moment when it's when things are hot. I completely agree. And I think that it can be made fun. And you know, sometimes we use metaphors like pretend that you have a book on your stomach and you want the book to be going up and down. Or pretend like you're blowing up a balloon. What would that look like? And let's do it together. And maybe we could even have a breathing contest. Yeah, yeah, we can make it playful. Because I think, you know, nobody wants to take, be told, take a breath when they're, in the, when they're stressed out. We have to we have to build the comfort with with breath work in outside of those moments because it's otherwise it's like it can be I feel like if I'm really upset or anxious or stressed out and someone tells me to take a breath like I find that I'm like you take a breath like <laughs> you have to we have to build that into like the relational aspect of things outside of those moments so it's an accessible tool absolutely. Well, this is amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And if people want to learn more about your book or learn more about the work you're doing in your practice, how can people find you and learn more about you? Yeah, so to get the book, you can go to Amazon or actually in the stores at Barnes & Noble. Amazing. Which I'm super excited. There's a Barnes & Noble three blocks from my house. So I, I usually go to like, I enjoy stopping by to check out my book. 
Yes. So you can get it in stores and parts and that, but you could certainly get it on Amazon um, and independent booksellers that are online. And if um, folks would like to learn more about my practice, certainly my website would be a great resource. It's drdrterrybackout.com. And I can also be found on Instagram, which is at, again, dr, dr Terry Backout, Dr. Terry Backout. And the Instagram has a lot of information about the book and a lot of excerpts from it. So, oh, great. First of all, I encourage everyone to buy it, but if um, that's not a possibility. If you go to my Instagram, you're going to see images from it and quotes from it. And I really encourage um, people to do that because social media is so accessible. That's amazing. So there's a lot of ways that people can get can get access to the resources that you provide, which is awesome. And we'll link all of these links in the show notes. So if you're listening and you want to reach out to Terry, you can find her easily. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. It was so great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you're enjoying this podcast and you want to hear more, go ahead and follow, rate, and review Securely Attached on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. It's a small act, but it has a huge impact. And as a thank you for your support, I created a Banish Burnout weekly calendar to help create a simple and effective strategy for filling up your own tank and preventing burnout. Plus, you'll get a kid's version so you could teach them to relax and refuel right from the start. If you want a copy of my weekly Banish Burnout and Banish Burnout Kid Edition calendars, send me a screenshot of your Securely Attached podcast review wherever you stream your podcasts to info at drsarahbren.com and I'll send the calendar straight to your inbox. That's info at drsarahbren.com. I hope this podcast has been a place you can turn to for guidance, support, and reassurance in your parenting journey. Your support and your reviews have meant the world to me. I read every one, and I truly appreciate you being part of this community. So thank you, and don't be a stranger.